0: Funny how it be funny like I'm a clown, I am use you. Like I'm a clown.
1: Like I'm a clown. Like I'm a clown. Like I'm a clown. I'm a clown. I'm a clown.
0: Rosebud. 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 Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Silver Screen video with your host Jonathan and Jacob. Jacob, how's it going? How's New York? How you feeling? Is it cold? You know,
1: you know, it is cold. Um, And uh, I will say, speaking of the cold, the New York City Marathon uh, was just ran a couple days ago here in NYC. Boy, I tell you what, what's the temperature? Uh, Temperature, man, I don't fucking
0: know. (laughs) Well, I'm only asking because, like, dude, I cannot fucking stand doing races in the cold. And, like, dude, the idea of doing a marathon in New York City in, in November, it's got to be in, what, the 30s? That sounds awful.
1: No, 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 no. It's not that cold yet. No, no, no. It's it's okay. probably in the 50s. It's not... Um...
0: Okay, that's that's doable. I am a little bitch <clears throat> when it comes to doing races in the cold, but I think the 50s, I, I could do the 50s.
1: No, it actually... That's kind of a misconception. It, it doesn't actually get, like, that cold up here until, like, January. You know what I mean? Like, even through even through like december and stuff like it might get down to the 30s like you know late at night or whatever but it, it like you really got to wait till january before like the insane cold starts kicking in you know so uh the marathon h- how
0: did you even know it was this how did you know it was happening
1: um because some streets were closed off near me um i couldn't see them running by but it was it was a couple blocks away so there was like signs everywhere and stuff you know okay um, okay also, if you leave your house uh, during the, the day of the marathon, which I didn't do, you will see people um, all over the place with those like astronaut blankets uh, on. Uh, I think I guess they give them out. I don't know. But um, but yeah, it's a, it's kind of a little festive, little festive city event. You know, people stand there and give serve water and, you know, it's a fun little thing. And they also do a really fun thing, which is the last people to finish the marathon, Um, that is actually where the biggest crowd gathers. They all gather down and they count down like the, the last people, you know, and, uh, it's kind of, it's kind of heartwarming, you know?
0: No, dude, the race environment is a ton of fun. And, uh, and I've actually contemplated doing the New York marathon, but it's a pain in the ass to get into. And, uh, you know, time timeline has to work out, but I bet it would be a fun race. That's typically a very fast race for a lot of marathoners.
1: Yeah, they say it's really hard to get into like this and like Boston Marathon. Like those are those are hard to get Boston, into Boston
0: you have to qualify for. I think New York might be a lottery. I don't know if you have to qualify. But either way, I will not be doing either one anytime soon. But the idea of it seems fun.
1: Yeah, it's uh yeah, it's a it's a kind of a little nice pre Thanksgiving event here. Post post Halloween pre Thanksgiving uh event. So Well you know what's
0: cool, uh, for me anyway, not for you or the listeners, uh, is when this episode comes out, you know where I'll be?
1: Motherfucking New Zealand.
0: Well, not just New Zealand. When this comes out, I think I'm getting my time right, because the time is very obviously a big difference. I will be touring Hobbiton, having a drink at the Shire Bar, where they film Lord of the Rings
1: wow okay now the shire bar is that end of the prancing pony no that's somewhere different
0: no that 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 is the bar when they get now i can tell you specifics because i actually am doing a lord of the rings rewatch right now which we will get to in a moment that is the bar they go meet strider at but the bar we get to have a drink at is the bar actually in the shire
1: okay okay the one where like sam and uh rosie are like dancing at the beginning
0: yeah yeah. Okay. So you've got like, you know, all those guys are there having a drink after Bilbo leaves.
1: Ah, okay.
0: All right. So this fucking movie set is untouched. Like, you can't go in some of the houses, obviously, but like, it is literally the set Peter Jackson and his crew built for Lord of the Rings. And, uh, I don't care if I'm nerd or not for, for loving this. I cannot fucking wait because it Dude, looks that's amazing. That's incredible.
1: That's, uh, that's incredible. The, uh, the thing that I've always wanted to see from Lord of the Rings is the uh, who, you know, the, who's the king that is like all crusty and stuff? Is it the that's the king of Rohan, who who uh,
0: has a curse uh, from Saruman
1: and Rohan is the horse lords, right?
0: I believe so, because they're the ones in the sequel uh, that that have to fight. Um,
1: OK. At the fortress. Okay. So that, that area in, cause it's, it's like a big, like windswept plain. It's in the, the town is almost like on a plateau from what I remember. And I remember. Yeah.
0: Like the town, the, the, the great hall is, is at the top and then the bottom is the village with walls around it.
1: Right. Right. And then there's just like this big Valley, like all around that, that, that part, like I, whenever I watch the movies, I'm always like, man, that is like, if I ever go to New Zealand, that's what I want to see. I don't know why it just seems so like, I don't know. It just seems like the most beautiful part of where they filmed it. You know,
0: I'm going there, but it's not a tour. I'm driving there myself. I'm also driving to where the battle of Helm's Deep took place as well. So I'm mm. going to see a lot of that.
1: That's exciting, man. You are going to go, yeah. you're going to go live your, your, your Hobbit dreams out there.
0: Yeah. You know, and, and, you know, I'm sure you're going to disagree with this. Um, I, I think the Lord of the Rings is the greatest trilogy ever made. Hmm. I just really do. It, it's so, Perfect. It wraps up so great. There isn't really a weak link. The story is great. The set is great. Every, the, the actors all kill it. I cannot believe because I only rewatched them. This is my first rewatch in like eight years. I do not rewatch very often because I want to be able to enjoy it. Sure. But Lord of the, Lord of the Rings, man, that that trilogy is something else, man. I know people have. I know nerds have kind of ruined that the way, um you know, nerds can ruin stuff sometimes. And I'm <laughs> the including the they've
1: ruined everything.
0: I'm including myself in that. Cause I can be a nerd about a lot of stuff, but uh, it is, it is a fantastic trilogy. I really cannot um, really grasp the epic epicness of it.
1: No, it's, it's a hundred percent true, man. I mean, no matter how uh, jaded you are uh, when it comes to like nerd culture stuff, which I'm, I'm just about as uh, jaded as someone can be when it comes to that shit, like Lord of the Rings just still always hits, man. Like it, Like, you know, you can't substitute, like they're great movies. Like at the end of the day, that's, that's what matters. And like, they're just so epic. And um, yeah, man, Man, greatest trilogies. As soon as you said that, I was like, man, I don't even know what's in contention there. You know, I mean, we kind of want to say Godfather trilogy, but like not, you know, they don't tie together. I mean, and they're not pound for pound equal, you know, even though I do like the third one. I don't know. I know.
0: As soon as as I started on this train of thought, I started thinking, man, it might be a fun episode to like really make us watch And Then you have to decide just like when we have to fight over genres about sci-fi movies or action movies of the eighties, you have to decide what is a real trilogy. Like, Mm. like for instance, you have your, your offbeat, like, director branded trilogies like the Hasey trilogy from the Coen's. And then you have literally numerical trilogies, but then do you want to say greatest trilogy or greatest film series? Because then you start introducing shit like hunger games, Harry Potter, shit like that. So right. there's I mean, actually even, a lot
1: to it. I mean, even fucking James Bond and, you know, I
0: mean, and in, uh, yeah, Indiana Jones as well. Like if you, you can't ignore yeah. the other two movies before the other two movies. I would have said, I think actually that might be the greatest trilogy ever made.
1: Yeah. Right. Or maybe star Wars is in contention. The original, the,
0: the original three. Absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, yeah there's a, there's a lot there. Uh, it's a good conversation. Maybe we'll have it one day.
1: Maybe. Uh, I was thinking of maybe some offbeat picks, you know, like death wish, maybe, I mean, I don't think I don't think death was in the conversation, but like there's there's definitely like an underrated category, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre might be an underrated trilogy because that second one is really good. Um,
0: I'm going to skate on past that.
1: You don't like the second Texas Chainsaw Massacre?
0: I do not. I do not like any Texas Chainsaw Massacre past the original brilliant one.
1: Dude, the second one is amazing, dude. Um, And
0: now which one is it with McConaughey?
1: Oh Jesus! I don't know. That's like I think eight.
0: that's that might be the third or fourth one. That one is terrible. So I, I know it's yeah. So I know it's not that one.
1: But yeah, yeah. That's uh, yeah. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of interesting stuff there. I mean, shit, man. Maybe scanners. You know, might be a nice little underrated uh, trilogy. Um, Dirty Harry. You know, I'll there's a that.
0: lot. I mean, how many? I think there's five Dirty Harrys. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah.
0: So yeah, there's there's a lot to be had there. Uh, but anyway, maybe one day we'll have a a film series or trilogy kind of conversation because I do find that to be interesting. Um, huh. I, I want to tell, I want to talk about this real quick before we get to our, our Hitchcock movies. Uh, so I was listening to an interview earlier with the cinematographer from Oppenheimer, uh, yeah. and I'm I. I am going to try to pronounce his name because I can't really uh, I can't remember how they pronounce his name. I'm looking it up real quick because uh, I want to get it right. Anyway, I'm listening to an interview with him, and he's the guy that's worked with Nolan a lot. I believe he worked with him on Interstellar. Um, his name is uh, Hoyt Van Hoytema. Now, that I'm sure that's wrong. Uh, mm. But anyway, that's who he is great cinematographer like just absolutely fantastic so they're talking about oppenheimer and then you've got rodrigo prieto who did the irishman and uh killers of the flower moon Mm. and i listened to a great interview with him point being these two great directors scorsese and nolan and you've got your army of nolan fanboys and your army of scorsese fanboys which I do consider myself a Scorsese fan. I don't know if I fall into the fanboy category the way I'm phrasing it. But anyway, a lot of people are thinking Oppenheimer is going to sweep or should at least sweep the Oscars. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, we've voiced our discontent with the Oscars on this podcast and don't really take them seriously. But I do find it interesting that two very important historical movies came out within a couple of months of each other. And both of them are really valuable when it comes to the different points of American history they're covering. And I don't know why, but uh, I mean, I've thought about it, but I didn't really sit down and like, let that sink in and really give it deep thought. And I find that entirely fascinating because Oppenheimer clearly goes over, I mean, one of the. someone who built something responsible for one of the most tragic events in human history. And then another movie where it goes over one of the most tragic events in human history that was done by men opposed to a a bomb. Um, Anyway, I find it incredibly interesting. And I do think that a lot of the, a lot of that's going to be lost when the Oscar battle heats up and it's going to come down to like Nolan versus Scorsese. And I don't know why a part of that made me kind of like, man, that really sucks. Cause I feel like some of the value of what these films bring are going to be lost because it's just going to be Nolan's army. Cause you know, he does have a pretty devout army. I don't know if you remember when, when bad reviews for dark Knight rises started hitting rotten tomatoes and people were getting death threats over it.
1: Yeah. So, that's, that's what I sent. Probably the most emails I've ever sent in my life was during
0: that. Yeah, Exactly.
1: <laughs> but you know you know all too well. <laughs> I know all too well. I was I was leading the charge. I was threatening death all day, every day. Um <clears throat> no, I, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, you know, it it's it's an unfortunate side effect of movies, uh, and American movie culture in general, which I mean American movie culture has zoomed past the Oscars because, you know, nobody again really cares and the Academy continues to um uh, to undermine its own credibility uh, just at, a, at, a, at an alarming pace, shall we say. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, but no, it's true. I, I think it's, you know, wh- what that made me think of, I was listening to a podcast and I heard someone say, I could not connect with Oppenheimer because I saw it opening weekend and it was seeing a blockbuster, like, uh was it July fourth weekend when it came out? No, I think it was the end of July, okay, end of July. um either way, like seeing a big blockbuster movie that that came out and it was just like a big American blockbuster over that was about one of the worst atrocities that we've ever committed or that any any human being or nation has ever committed you know this this world destroying machine like seeing it in the context of barbenheimer go see barbie and then go see oppenheimer like seeing the uh seeing the gravity of that being kind of uh absorbed into like an american blockbuster marketing you know a setting completely turned this person off of the movie and was like i couldn't like I felt, I felt gross being in a movie theater, going to see it. I felt gross taking part in the whole Barbenheimer phenomenon. And it's like, and like, I understand that completely. You know what I mean? It's like the, it, it it's something we've talked about before. And I think David Thompson is all, is as always very good on this. It's like the movies are kind of dirtying up the, the tragedies that they're about, you know what I mean? By very, by the very fact that they're movies, it's like, Lily Gladstone I Hope she gets nominated for an Oscar and I hope she gets millions of dollars and has an amazing career and has all the success in the world. But it's like, if, if you walked out of flower, like if people are going to watch killers of the flower moon to be like, I want to watch a tear jerking Oscar performance. It's like, ah, oh, man, you know, like that's, I guess at least people are watching it, but that's tough, you know? And like, I, it's like the movies are kind of like sullying what they're about almost by the fact that they are unfortunately movies and have to partake in like mainstream American movie culture. You know what I'm saying? Does that kind of vibe with what you're saying?
0: It does. And then not just that, but I think, you know, the marketing cheapens the, the actual source uh, of the film, you know? Um, I agree about the Barbenheimer thing. You know, I, I agree with that logic, but I guess The when it comes to you do have to, and and once again, this is something that we go back and forth on. You do have to take into account that, yeah, I get all that, but at the end of the day, they are movies, and this was good for the theater. This was good for the studio. Now, fuck the studio because I'm glad the studio gave us this, but also, studios fuck up so much other shit. There's really no reason to give them too much credit on this, you know? Um, it's not, it's not tough to give Nolan. 150 million or Scorsese 200 million and be like, Hey, make a masterpiece. Like, you know, that's pretty easy lifting. Um, So I do understand what they're saying, but I mean, you know, that was kind of, if you bought into it that way, that's more or less on the consumer and not the actual Barbenheimer thing, because I went and saw Oppenheimer three times, loved it every time, did not give the whole Barbenheimer thing, a second thought, you know, it was just weird going to see it with so many people in pink every time. Um, <laughs> taking pictures with the Barbie poster, which was hilarious to me, but um, in a you way, know. it was kind of thrilling, you know, to be honest with you, like I, I think about old midnight showings, like I was literally thinking about watching uh yeah. the Two Towers at midnight, and I remember people cheering at certain scenes, and the energy was great, and that doesn't happen anymore. so right. Barbenheimer, for me, did bring some of that back but
1: yeah i mean i can see both sides of it because i'm a i'm at the end of the day i'm a, I'm a little you, you know what i mean i like I, i'm not i'm not standing outside on my high horse being like how dare they make a movie blockbuster out of oppenheimer you know I, my hands are dirty just like everybody else's like give me my little give me my little movies and my little stories you know what i mean like anything that's gonna make me feel like you said that midnight showing two towers experience like even if it comes at the cost of making a movie about a horrible tragedy you know i'm a grubby little movie lover i don't care you know but i can also see you know looking around in the theater on the day that it come out with everybody dressed in pink and then the fucking atom bomb being invented on screen and be like what on earth are we doing here? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> something has gone wrong somewhere. You know, like I, I can fully understand that. I mean, I didn't, I mean, I, luckily I didn't have to even make that cognitive choice because I went and saw it like three weeks later and it was like, you know, in basically a private screening room, you know, with like a handful of people in it watching it on 70 millimeters. So, like, I, I saw it in a really favorable context but i can get that point of of these movies kind of like their ostensibly important messages being obscured by the fact that they have to they've got to play the dirty game of the movie business you know what i mean we can't go we can't really go um watch them in the kind of solemn reverie with which they deserve i'm i'm speaking especially of killers of the flower moon here i saw some people complaining online about the trailers that were showing before uh killers of the flower moon and like oh
0: yeah i had the same complaint agree 100 percent.
1: yeah see but part of me is just like come on it's a movie but on the other hand i'm like yeah i mean did i want to see a preview from fucking five nights at freddy's before the killers of the flower moon not really you know like
0: well the reason it's frustrating is because studios do put thought into that you can't put a red band trailer in front of a pg-13 movie So you do get to see and also do come on, play to the audience. If I go to the theater and see a foreign movie, which I've done. And so have you, there's typically foreign trailers in front of it because you are the demographic. So therefore, if I'm going to go see killers, this isn't me being an elitist. This is just me being you're fucking stupid, like to the studio. Um, Don't put five nights of Freddy's when it's me and a bunch of like 80 year
1: olds in this theater. Right. You know, you think we're going to go fucking see five nights of Freddy's. (laughs) Like no, you no, you bring up a good point and it's uh you know I, and a lot of this is the Leo aspect too. I feel I mean Leo is the like the biggest movie star on the planet, I feel like, outside of Tom Cruise. And like I remember I told my my cousins about the movie that I went and saw and I said just Killers of the Flyer Moon. They were like, Oh, what's that? you know? And like I didn't feel like explaining it, and so I was just like, It's the new Leo movie, and they were like, Oh, I've seen that. Trailers for that, is that good? Like, well, it's not in the way that you might think, <laughs> you know, like, uh, it's, so it's like, you know, it's a, it's that all, you know, I mean, I'm just repeating myself at this point, but it's a great point. It's, you know, people like us think of these movies as these great, important things, but most people don't, most people just want to go have a good time and they want to engage in the, the dirty business of the movies, you know, and like, like it or not, but like our beloved art form has to exist in that paradigm. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. You know, like you said, like the conversation around *Killers of the Flower Moon* is going to be who wins the Oscar. It's not going to be anything about the actual content of the movies. To which I say, yeah, well, welcome to the pictures. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's <laughs> that's that's, that's them's the movies for you. You know.
0: Well, it's funny you say that, um, and, and we can we can move on to Hitchcock. I just wanted to bring this up because I thought it was an interesting conversation. But it's funny you say that because as I was, I can count on like one hand the amount of times I've had an interaction with somebody after a movie. It's typically you get your shit and you leave, you know? Um, but I'm, I'm waiting outside the theater and this guy is standing there and he's like, can you believe this shit? And I'm like, excuse me. (laughs) And he's like, (laughs) he's like, we're repeating the same thing, man. The same thing. Like, does anybody even pay attention to history? And then I'm like, Oh shit. Like this guy, this guy's legit. I'm like, yeah, exactly, dude. I'm like, and then we're just sitting there having a conversation in the hallway. We're just like talking about, yeah, like original sin, right? And like, fucking, how shit hasn't really changed. And like, and I, and a piece of me left that, and I, and I walked away from that conversation. And I was like, there was about fifty or sixty people in that theater, and like that guy got it, you know. Yeah. So maybe someone else will get it, kind of thing. But I do because the reason I'm saying that is because that I agree with you. I think most people are not gonna watch the movie and be ready to have an in-depth, thoughtful conversation about America's original sin and, sure. and and what we did to Native Americans kind of thing, which is fine. I'm not going to judge anybody one right. way or the other. I just thought it was interesting because that literally never happens to me.
1: No, it's, yeah, no, 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 no you're right. It's like most people aren't going to say or come away with that. And it's like, well, yeah, because they just want to go to the movies and forget about the fact that they're, you know mortgages due, and then inflation is going up and you know what i mean you just want to put on some fucking content and forget about your life for for 90 minutes or whatever you know um and who 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 can who can turn their nose up at that that's that impulse that all of us have you know um, no,
0: absolutely no so
1: but no it's i'm glad you brought that up because it is it is interesting whenever our, our 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 sacred little you know it's like our sacred little thing that we're all you know uh uh, interested in, um, you know, and and that we're all obsessed with and care about all of us movie lovers. And it's like, uh, yeah, don't forget pal. Like this is, Nolan's going to be whoring himself for an Oscar campaign here in about three months. You know, like it's, it's, uh, it's a dirty business. The the one that this movies that we love, you know?
0: And, you know, I do think this kind of plays into, The cinephile relationship with film, as we discussed uh, with Hugo, you know, last week is, is like you, you can still appreciate the movie and be glad that someone watched it and just came away with a different perspective than you, because that is just the way movies work. Because regardless of the subject matter and regardless of the runtime and the thoughtful nature that these directors put into these films and all that. Like, at the end of the day, like you said, it is just a movie. So, yes, people are going to walk away with different relationships to what happened in the movies. So, and that's fine. You know, some people get mad about it, and I get it. I used to be that way. I used to, if I, if I watched a movie and somebody watched the same thing and they didn't, like, come away with, like, some weird existential idea right. or something like that, I'm like, did you even watch the fucking movie? Like, <laughs> what are right. you even doing over there? Right. Um So, <laughs>
1: And it Well, you know, and it, I should, I want to mention too, it's not just movies and movies is just the most common one and the most obvious one because everybody has access to it. But like, you know, not too far away from me right now is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And like, you know, probably I think most people would agree the second most important, you know, outside of the Louvre, the second most important, you know, art museum on the planet. I mean, literally a repository of you know, some of the most amazing things that human beings have created over our entire history. And yet you will not find a more disgusting, ostentatious display of wealth and privilege than the Met Gala every year, you know, but like,
0: I'm, I'm glad you went that way. Cause I thought you were going to try to like, talk about like, you know, paintings and I was going to shoot that down, but no, I like where you <laughs> I like where your head's at now
1: well you know what i mean i'm just saying like it's like movies are a dirty business but i mean shit none of our we're all eating out of the trash can at this point you know like oh yeah absolutely yeah like it's the you know i like i love the fact that that the med exists and you can go and you can meditate about humanity and the human experience and all this other bullshit but like at the end of the day there is some disgusting wealth that makes that possible and that wealth is god knows what it comes from you know it comes from fucking pharmaceuticals and oil and all the other like awful shit. You know, it's like none of our hands are clean. None of our, none of our favorite pastimes are clean. None of our favorite art forms are clean, you know, which kind of makes the, the individual works of art, even that much more of a miracle, you know, like that, it, that they exist at all. Like, you know, it's a miracle that a company like Apple who is, you know, you don't even have to ask the question why they're evil. And yet they gave us something like killers of a flower moon. And it's like, man, it's, you know, sure takes the sting out of late capitalism, you know?
0: No, I mean, that's, and that, and that is the sacrifice or, or the, uh, uh, what's the word?
1: It's a given compromise.
0: Compromise. That's the compromise we all make. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, anyway, now that we're, and also guys, if you have an opinion on this, let us know, like, you know, is it just a movie or are they a springboard for larger conversations? Are these the positive aspects we can take away from this like commercialized type of ordeal with these studios? You know, um, let us know. Cause I'm curious to see what you guys think
1: unless think you disagree
0: I, and then don't, don't let us know.
1: Yeah. Don't, don't you fucking say anything if you disagree. <laughs> But, That's but a good no, way
0: to have a conversation.
1: <laughs> but it, it's also more and more prescient just because like the, the movie industry is slowly turning into the tech industry basically, you know, and it's like, it's like, okay, MGM in like say 1939, it's like, yeah, it's a big business, but on the list of things that are ruining the world MGM in 1939 is pretty far down the list. Right. Where, but like the movie business is slowly creeping up that ladder because it's getting, in bed with the tech sector you know with apple netflix amazon and it's like dude i mean amazon's the greatest example they're probably the most evil corporation in the world and like they put out some good shit you know so
0: hey man um, i can get my stuff typically in 48 hours so
1: what are you gonna do dude as long as i get my (laughs) treats that's all i care about
0: There are no ethical purchases in a capitalistic society. That's what I say every time I place an Amazon order. And I feel t- better about things. <laughs>
1: uh, have I really thought that through? Or is that just some words I say to make me feel better? Definitely the latter. But, you know, it doesn't well, trip. He- Real deep thought over here. Um, <laughs> anyway. Okay, let's, let's get to this little
0: fucking British pervert that you keep wanting to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> fucking... Fucking Alfred Hitchcock. You know what?
1: You're tired I mean, of talking about Hitchcock, aren't you? This,
0: this better be, well, I'm not tired of it because I'm, I'm watching, you know, I'm filling in blind spots, but you know, we, we better be taking a, we better be taking a Hitchcock break for a bit. I'll say that, <laughs> but uh, tell, tell us what these two movies are. Cause one of them I, I really enjoyed. I thought, I thought it was actually really fun since these are his British ones, but tell us what these two movies are. And like, educate me, because I did some reading, but, you know, educate me and the listener on how to differentiate, if you can anyway, between British Hitchcock and then his transition to American cinema.
1: Yeah, you know, I think that, um, you know, the primary, well, at least the primary thing for me is, you know, Hitchcock wasn't quite as, uh, there's basically three three kind of levels to Hitchcock, right? There's his uh the kind of post strangers on a th- on a train works right the 50s with rear window vertigo psycho the birds you know his most famous movies marnie these are movies where hitchcock is delving deep into his into his psychiatric bag and really letting us in on some of his most pervy uh tendencies shall we say and then we have the 1940s uh starting with rebecca And going, you know, probably through strangers on a train, or just, just before strangers on a train, where I I think this is his most variable period. There's some absolute classics there, right? Like Rebecca, Notorious. Um, There's some stinkers in there too. There's, you know, I Confess. I mean, you know, some of the stuff. It's like who, who even, who even made this stuff? Um, British Hitchcock is different because he's really finding his footing for the first half of the 30s, and The Thirty Nine Steps is the first full flowering in 1935 of Alfred Hitchcock's aesthetic. Al- Alfred, or I shouldn't say his aesthetic, his uh, his themes and stuff that he would uh, refer back to throughout the rest of his career, right? It's about a wronged man who goes on the run. I mean, North by Northwest is essentially a remake of this, an American remake almost, of this movie. Um, and British Hitchcock is uh more conventionally entertaining i'll say more um uh, uh funnier uh more quick-witted uh more focused on kind of thrills chills and spills than american hitchcock you know as soon as as soon as hitchcock gets to america he's making rebecca and rebecca is rebecca's not conventionally entertaining as much and i think rebecca's really moving Rebecca has some really powerful performances, and you can just the the level of production quality is also, uh, you know, exponential. Comparing British Hitchcock to American Hitchcock, Uh, British Hitchcock is mostly kind of action comedies, um, and American Hitchcock is, you know, he becomes to he he begins to be under the influence of David O. Selznick, a a serious filmmaker, and I personally, I think Hitchcock needed that that element of seriousness brought to his sensibility when he came to America. But some of these British movies are really, really entertaining and 39 steps, especially, I think um, there, there's someone who said some great director who I don't have his name in front of me said that um, uh, the 39 steps. Oh, I know who it is. It's Robert town, the, the screenwriter from, you know, Chinatown, the screenwriter. Um, he said the 39 steps is the beginning of 20th century, like escapist uh, uh, entertainment, basically, that, that it is the blueprint and that every action movie, every thriller, every everything is based upon this blueprint in the 39 steps. And when you think about pre-1935 escapist entertainment, it's really, really hard to refute that, that take from Robert Town. Because, you know, you have the universal horror movies and stuff. They are nowhere near as thrilling. And they're not not—they're not trying to do the same thing. Don't get me wrong. But, they're, you know, movies are not nearly as thrilling. They're a lot more about atmosphere. But this movie, The 39 Steps, and The Lady Vanishes to a lesser extent. Because it is, I think, generally viewed as the lesser of these two movies. Um, but The 39 Steps is going from step one. Like, it is it is really really just it hits the ground running and it doesn't stop until the end and it's a thrill ride and so it's really hard to see any remnants of thriller movies before the 39 steps i think at least at least in my mind i think that's a good that's a good take um what about you do you have any experience with british hitchcock uh previously or had you seen any, any either of these movies or what do you think the the key differences are between, you know, American and British Hitchcock.
0: Well, I, I don't have really any experience with, with, uh, with British Hitchcock and I hadn't, I hadn't seen either of these movies. So we can talk about both of those while getting into the 39 steps, because that is my biggest issue with the 39 steps Okay, is British Hitchcock was tonally insane. Right, like the the tone of Thirty Nine Steps is so bizarre, and and in some ways I could appreciate it. And and let's say what it's about first. Um, Thirty Nine Steps, the Thirty Nine Steps, nineteen thirty five. A man in London tries to help a counter espionage agent, but when the agent is killed and the man stands accused, he must go on the run to save himself and stop a spy ring that is trying to steal top secret information. So the movie opens up with a, with a, with a very uh, like, like a guy who has a, a bit on stage and our, our lead um, meets this woman. They go to his apartment. She gets killed as she's telling him about this organization. Then, you know, it turns into the very classic Hickshot trope that didn't really change through a uh, British to American, hmm. which is man wrongly accused kind of thing. Like right. man on the run that, that didn't really change. Like you already pointed out with North by Northwest and things like that. Also like, you can see in some of it, you can even see the roots of, of his issues with women and mother figures in the last four movies we've covered. You can see those roots um, and how they translate to American, but the movie starts off with her getting uh, killed and him getting wrongly accused. And it's a very serious tone, but then inexplicably for like within the last 30 minutes, it turns into a Howard Hawks movie. It turns. <laughs> right. in, it turns into like um what's what's the movie that that you liked a little more than me where they're in the um they're uh, that you Cary Grant's a pilot. What is the name
1: of the oh movie? only angels have wings.
0: Yeah, dude. It turns into like something like that. Like it it has that tone and it kind of reminded me of that. And mm. you've got all this serious shit going on and. Right. There's so much in this movie, like Hitchcock didn't mind packing in the commentary, even though tonally, I don't know what he was doing, but he, 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 you know, there's a scene where the guy's given a speech and I guess British politics at the time was very reflected in, in what was going on in the film. Sure. Um, but the, the, it's so bizarre. The movie ends with them holding hands, like in this cheeky kind of way. And I'm like, what the fuck just happened?
1: Like,
0: you know, and we can talk about the ending in a few minutes after, you know, I know I said a lot, so you can respond to all that, but I did really enjoy the way the movie wrapped up. The ending was really fucking cool,
1: but yeah, no, I think the, the, I think you bring up a really great point, which is that the, the, you know, the mastery of tone that you would get, uh, was not quite there. And I think a big reason for that, well, I I shouldn't say a reason for that, but a big, um, uh so something that contributes i guess to this to this um you know complicated and and varying tone i think is the performance of the main character robert donat who by the way we this is two episodes in a row we've talked about uh a movie with him in it. he was in the magic box um last week and oh yeah uh, yeah and uh but he wasn't in very many movies so kind of weird that we did that um but uh you know his performance. I think is something that Hitchcock didn't know what to do with. I think at the time, because his performance is very, very, very much that of a Cary Grant, right? It's very, uh, or, or Jimmy Stewart, right? It's men who don't wear masculinity uh, in a really obvious way, right? Um, it, it's uh, he's kind of flippant and. I think Hitchcock kind of doesn't know what to do with this, right? Because it's a, very, it's a very interesting performance and it's a very kind of complicated performance that goes kind of in and out of comedy and seriousness and has all these different varying tones to it. And this is something that Cary Grant was the master of, right? And this is something that Hitchcock uh, knew what to do with. He, he knew how to build a movie around Cary Grant by the time North by Northwest came out. In fact, he knew how to do it uh, when Notorious came out right um but north by northwest is obviously the big one and so i I, there's just a lot of elements here that don't quite fit together as like completely but to me at least from my perspective and what i enjoy about the movie is those are all secondary to the fact that this movie goes like it like it is just you know the woman hides out and then she gets killed with the knife and uh, then he has to sneak out, looking you know, with the milkman and, and, and then uh, before you know it, uh, he's like escaping from the train that's across a bridge. And you're like, where is this thing going? Like, <laughs> this is, like I feel like, like no pun intended, like where this is a train that is just, it, that is just barely staying on track. You know what I mean? And it, 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 it remains in that tone. I feel like all the way through to the end when the mr memory guy is basically talking about the plants of an airplane as he's giving his dying breath and the movie just fucking ends and you're just like what just happened like it, it and i think that is what that is what makes this hold up uh to me more so than the lady vanishes which is more so almost like a screwball comedy um in a way but um yeah, I don't know. Does that ring true? What else? What else about 39 Steps that jumped out at you? Well, I do want to say I I
0: agree with your comparison, but I do want to just clarify, in my opinion, it is a very poor man's, like, Cary Grant, Jimmy Stewart performance. No offense to this oh, guy, sure, sure. but, yeah, you know, he he wasn't. Now, mind you, he's not, I don't want to jump ahead, but he's not nearly as annoying as Michael right. Redgrave. I wanted to punch Michael Redgrave in the face for like three quarters of the lady vanishes. Um,
1: but the 39 no. steps. Hey, go ahead. No, I just, I just said, you're right. You're right.
0: Oh, I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if you, yeah, you would feel differently about the lady vanishes, but, um, no, the 39 steps, man, once it settled in, you know, this is why it's very interesting watching Hitchcock, British Hitchcock, because once it settled into its tone, the seeds of greatness were there. You could see that he was going to master it once he got some guidance, once he got some exposure. Right. right. So the seeds are there the the, the, the Hitchcock trickery, you know, is on in 39 steps and the lady vanishes, you know, those tricks that he pulls, like it's very, it's like a very um, British in a much more subtle way, like M night kind of move. Hmm. Um So you can kind of see the seeds of greatness. So that is really interesting to watch that, especially with the end of the 39 steps, because that was a cool little callback that I did not really expect, given how tonally he was kind of a little wonky, the whole, the whole movie. That was a really interesting, cool callback. So, I mean, I enjoyed the 39 steps. Like, you know, it it was, it, like I said, the tone was off and it bugged me a little bit, but outside of that, um, I thought it was great. I thought the ending was great. Like I, it's not nearly as good as like strangers on a train, which I still stand by saying that's top tier Hitchcock. Um, but it's really entertaining.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I think there's a good, I, I, I think, I think 39 steps is the best, uh, British Hitchcock movie. And I think there's probably a good, you know, maybe 10 movies that I would put above 39 steps. Um, you know, just the uh, American Hitchcock just like you said, he, he he knew what to do. And you know, something just to give a little more context too, like it, it is really, really shocking the amount of maturity, uh, and, and the amount of maturing and the amount of development that Hitchcock underwent over this ten year period. Because, you know, in nineteen twenty seven he directed the or no, sorry, I think it's nineteen twenty eight was the lodger. Um and the Lodger is a silent film, film and a, gr- a great silent movie, but he got saddled with uh, a producer who didn't like his experimental tendencies, because Hitchcock always wanted to you know experiment and do these different kind of visual tricks and stuff like that, you know the classic the classic Hitchcock stuff that we all know. Um, and he got saddled with a producer who wasn't having any of it right that's why when you go look at early 30s hitchcock it's like man what the fuck are these movies like they they in no way resemble you know uh what what he would even begin to make in the late 30s and so then with 1934 he made uh the man who wasn't there the first version of that story with peter lorre which is a really really good movie too um, yeah i really
0: i had have seen that and i really like it
1: yeah that's a that's a that's a great peter lorre performance and a great uh one of those great movies where like like the old gangster movies where at the end of it, they're like holed up in a, you know, in a room and trying to fight their way out. Like I always love those endings to those gangster movies. But um, anyway, so like he, my point is Hitchcock was not used to working with uh, big British budgets, right? Much less big American budgets. He was not used to working with stars. He was not used to working with even really particularly good actors, Right um he was basically in the the ghetto of the british film industry until he got out from under that producer's thumb and got into uh i believe it's Gaumont uh studios um in the uk and got under a producer um who uh would eventually be a huge producer in Ealing Studios which was a very successful uh british studios who actually made uh the last movie we talked about the the magic box but um my point is Hitchcock did a lot of maturing in a very, very short amount of time. Right. And when you watch something like Rebecca, even compared to this, and then if you compare the 39 steps to something he was making, say two years earlier uh, in 1933, the leaps and bounds he was taking. And he, he didn't, he didn't start off his career in a very fortuitous position. And so he's still learning, you know, that that's one of the reasons why I brought up the Robert do not performance, obviously it doesn't compare to Jimmy Stewart or Cary Grant or, you know, any of those other um, performances, but it is a unique and interesting performance that Hitchcock doesn't know quite how to handle. Right. And then cut to 20 years later and Hitchcock is masterminding, you know, the greatest actor to ever live, Cary Grant, or the second greatest actor to ever live in vertigo, you know, like it's, um, Hitchcock was learning on the fly with some of this stuff. And that's why, the thing I love about Thirty Nine Steps, we can move on to Lady Vanishes, which is that Thirty Nine Steps, and this is kind of talking about a conversation me and you had earlier off pod. Uh, but it's like it's like nineteen fifties rock and roll, you know. It's like Chuck Berry or something, where it's like it sounds like it's about to just spin out of control, you know. But it never really is. The movie's never really about to spin out of control. It's got all these different tones and different and you're like where the fuck is this going and then when it wraps up you're like oh he was in control the whole time you know like ah, he knew what he was doing you know does it does it make sense like it's like oh yeah yeah just feel like it's about to go off the rails and then it's like ah this was never gonna go off the rails he had it he had it in mind the whole time you know
0: no i i no i agree and i and i think that that's where as we move on to the lady vanishes, that's where that one kind of loses me because it's not ne- It wasn't nearly as fun to me. Um, I don't know. I just didn't feel like it was as clean to say that, you know, as, as talking about the other ones.
1: Um, it, it's certainly not. And the ending really, <laughs> the last, it's, like, uh, 50, the ending 50, is insane. Dude, the last 15 minutes of lady vanishes, I mean, are. Essentially, like us, like bringing a baby or something. Like it's like well, like but
0: but the thing about it. Well, let's say what it's about first. Okay, so yeah. Lady Vanishes, nineteen thirty eight. While traveling in continental Europe, a rich young playgirl realizes that an elderly lady seems to have disappeared from the train. Um, Look, you know we we can we can jump around a little bit and all that. I honestly I don't have a ton to say about this movie, but the ending is a screwball comedy feel while there's a fucking shootout going on, Right. like it is chaos. I don't understand even what his plan was in this movie. I feel like this was pretty much all experimental and, you know, going back to what we said earlier, there was no one there to rein him in. There was no one there to really kind of be like, Hey, this may not work in the confines of, of, of the world you're building.
1: Right.
0: Because it was insane. Like yeah. I, I was like, what the fuck just happened?
1: Yeah, he's going in a lot of different directions in this movie, and you know, uh, uh, something—the shootout, the screwball comedy shootout—it made me think of um, uh, Rules of the Game, a movie that you know, and th- this is you know, obviously early Hitchcock was not prime Renoir, you know. Like I'm, I'm kind of making a stupid comparison here, but like when you compare it to Rules of the Game, that is also has scenes in it to play like a screwball comedy. Uh, that also has guns and shootouts and various, you know, goings on and stuff. But Renoir is it probably a, maybe the most masterful uh, when it comes to like tone in the history of cinema. Like he's, he's pulling the strings, like a puppet master directing like an orchestra, whatever you want to call it. He is, he is teasing out these comedic possibilities and then, you know, instantly jerking his hand back and making it into a tragedy, you know what I mean? And it it all feels very seamless and just, you know, kind of miraculous almost in a way. And when you compare it to, you know, Hitchcock, Hitchcock looks very clumsy, you know, in that regard where he's just like, he's just all over the place because you start out with this kind of, with almost a similar premise of 39 Steps. And, you know, but then it turns out to be a lot less thrilling but a lot more funnier than 39 steps. And you're just kind of left with like, man, what the hell's going on here? That being said, I do think it is a, it is a good movie. I do think it is fun. Uh, but it does take you a while to kind of realize like, what is going on here? You know, like, what is the, what am I supposed to be? Am I supposed to be laughing at this? You know? And once you find out that answer is yes, then I think it becomes a lot more enjoyable, but, um,
0: I mean, I, I will say like, yeah, once you do settle in and kind of figure out the tone, it is more enjoyable, which can happen with some movies, some movies you really do kind of have to figure out, okay, this is how I should approach this to know if I should laugh or know if it's being serious or not. But for me, there were just too many hurdles to overcome and the lady vanishes to really get a whole lot of, of joy out of it. It was not my favorite after watching the 39 steps, which I watched first. Uh, I was expecting it to be a little more, I don't know, fun than it was without being to the point to where I don't even understand what he's trying to do, kind of thing. Right. Right.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think Lady Vanishes, to me at least, is it, it, it's one of the movies that, you know, obviously there's like, you know it nods a little bit to like the political ramifications of the time i shouldn't say a little bit it it kind of is a metaphor for like appeasement and you know uh you know german fascism and all that sort of thing but as far as like the kind of psychosexual shit that would that would go on in hitchcock's later movies like it's almost completely absent i would say from lady vanishes unless there's something i'm not thinking of um does that feel right to you
0: no, that absolutely feels right. I mean, yeah, I agree 100%. Because
1: at uh, least with Robert Niro, you have him being uh, handcuffed to her, or at least with 39 Steps, you have him being handcuffed to her and her like trying to remove her stockings, you know, while they're handcuffed together. You have a little bit of, you get a little bit of perviness in there, but 39 Steps, I feel like doesn't have any of that. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, British Hitchcock, uh, David Thompson says, British Hitchcock is a career unto itself. And I think that's definitely true. And if you, you know, if you're either a big Hitchcock fan, you know, British Hitchcock is obviously essential, but I also think these movies are just plainly entertaining on their own. But also if you're interested in this kind of thing, you can learn a lot about how a filmmaker develops by watching, you know, three or four of these, I would recommend the lodger, which I think is a really, I think The Lodger is really underrated. I think it's one of the best silent movies. Uh I really do. And then uh The Man Who Wasn't There with Peter Lorre, and then 39 Steps and then Lady Vanishes. And then if you cap that off with like watching Rebecca, y- you will see more clearly I think than in just about any other director's career what the evolution of a young filmmaker looks like. You know, from from tentative kind of experimentation uh, all the way through to the full flowering of Rebecca, which was a mainstream gothic woman's picture that was uh, critically acclaimed and it was widely seen. Uh, it was very popular too. So it's like, you know, it, it really does encompass the full evolution of him as a filmmaker. And it's almost like once he got Rebecca down, it was like, well, then he can really do what he wants. Right. Cause he's proved he can make movies at the highest level with high budgets with stars uh you know he can make something that's critically acclaimed and that people love and went in songs very popular and now he can really get down and dirty now he can really get up to some fucking shenanigans like with shadow of a doubt and strangers on a train and stuff like that so um yeah i don't know I'm, i'm we might have spent too much time on on hitchcock but i really wanted to i do think he is you know, not the best director of all time, but I do think he is probably the most important director of all time and maybe the the most director of all time, if that makes sense, like his career in, in, in his work is really emblematic of what a film director is. And that includes the movies that he does that are bad, you know, because like it, 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 it like back in the day, like directors would get stuck with a fucking bad idea that they just had to do. You know what I mean? And they just had to do their best with some shitty material so that they could end up directing the movie they really wanted to direct with their next movie, right? You know, we, we see that all the time in directors' careers. And Hitchcock's is a great example of that, too. So I feel like he is the most emblematic of of any filmmaker of all time because he worked within the system and, you know, the variability of his work and that and that. So I don't know. Maybe it's a thing for me because I really wanted to, uh, to focus on that, but sorry, that was my phone ringing. That is not a phone call that I need to end the podcast for, but that's my take. I don't know anything else on Hitchcock you got. Yeah. Hey pal. How about when we record our
0: fucking podcast at like a fucking professional and turn (laughs) your phone off? Because I mean, we've been doing this for three years and uh, I've never had a phone call interrupt the podcast. So
1: whatever. Um, I guess it's not my fault. No one wants to talk to you, you know,
0: (laughs) that's true. (laughs) Um, no, I see what you're saying about Hitchcock. (sighs) I agree with you there. There is, we can be suspicious of his artistry. You know, we can be suspicious, I guess, of his artistic integrity, all we want. But at the end of the day, the man left fingerprints all over cinema and what he did what he what he helped build in the film world is something we're still seeing today i mean point in case m night you know m night like for someone who's never watched a hitchcock movie but you've watched a lot of his movies you're pretty familiar with how hitchcock works you know mm-hmm. um so i mean I, I i'm not the biggest fan will i has has this little hitchcock series or whatever we want to call it Uh, Has it convinced me that I do need to revisit Psycho, The Birds, North by Northwest, Rear Window, Vertigo? Do I need to revisit them more? Absolutely. And I have since we've started Hitchcock. I have watched all those movies more than once. So that is something I took away from it. But regardless of of how we feel about him as an artist, his fingerprints are all over cinema and and you can't deny it. I mean, that that just is what it is.
1: Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I had a um I had a uh a long time ago. I I got a a, a book about um it was, I think it was called Film an Introduction. And it was just like the basic, you know, um you know, explaining uh uh how to read a film and different angles and lighting and how to interpret different things and you know, just kind of basically like a film 101. And um the very first Uh, the very first kind of chapter was just um, uh, basically illustrating how a film is a series of choices that someone makes. And most of the time, the person in charge of making those choices is the director, right? And it was just illustrating that very, very simple point. And the example they used was the dinner table sequence in shadow of a doubt whenever um you know joseph cotton is <laughs> getting in his bag and talking about all the pigs all the how all yeah. women are pigs <laughs> or whatever <laughs> and, uh, and they used that sequence as um i don't know uh, as a um as a uh, uh illustration for basically how cinema works you know And I think that's a really great, um, I really think that's a great, um, you know, thing to say about Hitchcock. And I think one of the main things you can say is that he is cinema in that way. And he defined so much of what we think of when we think of how a director, uh, imprints their style and their system of morality and their worldview and all that shit onto a movie. You know, Hitchcock is a perfect example of that. Um. I think we should close out, if you don't mind, by reading a uh, short paragraph from David Thompson. What do you think?
0: Absolutely that that is the most fitting way to uh, to wrap up Hitchcock.
1: All right, so this is just the last paragraph on the on the David Thompson entry on on Alfred Hitchcock. I don't think it's uh, you know it's obviously everybody has access to this, but we'll just read it as a way to sum up uh, sum up Hitchcock, uh, probably better than either of us are capable of doing. So he says here, his great films are only partly his. They also belong to the minds that interpret them. There is an artistic timidity in Hitchcock that, having put the audience through it, must allow them to come to terms with the experience. But his own personality is withdrawn cold, insecure, and uncharitable. The method, despite its brilliance, is equally private and restrictive. To plan so much that the shooting becomes a chore is an abuse, not just of actors and the crew, but of cinema's predilection for the momentary. It is, in fact, the style of an immense premeditative artist, like Bach or Proust or Rembrandt. And beside those masters, Hitchcock seems an impoverished inventor of thumbscrews who shows us the human capacity for inflicting pain, but no more. Such precision can only avoid seeming overbearing and misanthropic if it is accompanied by creative untidiness. In The Last Resort, his realized blueprints affirm film's yearning for doubt and open endings. And I think that is, uh, that's a perfect way to leave it. You know, uh, it's contrasting his his brilliance with, um, you know, some of his uh, we'll call them issues. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, what do you think? You think we did Hitchcock well?
0: I think we did. And I think that last line is something because there is Hitchcock loved to play with suspense. He loved to play with with casting doubt, either casting doubt on innocence, casting doubt on. Guiltiness. I mean, he loved to mess around with his characters and really make the audience question everything. And there's something just so interesting about that. And I understand that more or less uh, directors can easily do that these days. But he what he when you lay when you forge the path, I think sometimes you you the, the credit you deserve can can be a tad bit dismissed, you know. Mm. And with Hitchcock, he did forge the path. He was a pioneer of camera movement, like creating doubt, creating suspense. And clearly all that was there in other films before him. You know, we could find that in silent films, but he found a way to just make it such a craft in terms of if you follow these blueprints, like if you follow what I'm saying, what I'm doing, you will be able to create, you will be able to duplicate this feeling of doubt this feeling of dread this feeling of of suspense Hmm. and he's just you know there's you like love him or hate him respect him as an artist or not there's just something special about that there's a quality there
1: yeah no it's um yeah it's 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 it's, yeah it's such uh yeah i don't know that that is interesting yeah the blueprints that you know, because he, you know, is making blueprints for his movies that um, then the crew just goes and shoots, you know, um, but his, his work has also been a blueprint of, uh, um, I mean, you could say the entire century of escapist cinema, like that uh, that guy said about the, the 39 steps, you know? Yeah. Um Yeah, and you can question all that shit, but... You can't question the craft. You know, you can't question the fact that he understood uh, cinema and film at a very, very deep level, uh, maybe deeper than anybody ever, you know, and quibbles about his greater artistic project and how many different kind of variable quality movies he had are really beside the point when we talk about his, his pure talent and pure eye for, um, you know, just putting the audience through the ringer, you know?
0: Absolutely. So. If anything, I hope this series has just made our listeners want to go revisit Hitchcock or, or watch new Hitchcock movies, find blind spots in his filmography and just kind of enjoy and and view him in a different light than before. Because I know that's what it's certainly done for me. So I think we did him justice. And I think uh, we, we've done well with Hitchcock.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And if... um you know, if anybody out there is looking to obviously the movies that we talked about are kind of uh the main ones, you know. Um, you know, with uh The Birds, Marnie, North by Northwest, Rear Window, you know, we covered all of those, but I mean, there's a whole there's a whole secondary Hitchcock market out there that's that's full of some, you know, I've talked a little bit about saboteur on here, uh, which I really love. Sabotage is also great. Um you know uh lifeboat spellbound under Capricorn stage fright dial in for murder to catch a thief the trouble with Harry and you may think I'm just naming off his movies in chronological order I'm not that's that's not even half of them uh that's uh so yeah there's a lot of Hitchcock out there and um yeah I think we I think we I think we've we've explored uh, uh all we can well not all we can but we've explored a lot of uh, of Hitchcock and yeah I think we did him justice yeah so i mean guys that's it you know uh
0: go watch some hitchcock that's pretty much what the takeaway is here do mm-hmm. you have anything to add before uh, before we get out of here
1: no let's wrap it up man
0: guys thanks for stopping by the silver screen video once again thanks for enduring our hitchcock uh, episodes over these last few years and uh, we'll see you next week at the silver screen video